0: hey everybody welcome to episode 41 of the flight test community cast today our guest is red jensen he is the chief let me see if i get this right red s-u-a-s type 1 and 2 chief pilot for the NASA Armstrong Flight Research Facility.
1: Yeah, you got it. Nice job. Dude,
0: I nailed it. All right. So, uh today we're going to be talking with a guy who uh he might know a thing or two about RC airplanes because he gets paid by NASA
2: to, M- to fly maybe them. maybe just a little.
0: Just a little bit. <laughs> um
2: I, I, I,
0: Red. I am really, really excited to talk to you. Um, like I have been giddy for the last couple of weeks when you agreed. Since you agreed to come <laughs> on, I, I'm not kidding. Um, I've. No worries. Uh, believe it or not, I'm just like you guys. I'm,
1: I'm a huge airplane nut, so this is totally cool with me.
0: So you're saying you're just a couple of you're you're an idiot as well. You, you shouldn't. Yeah, I just yourself, Red.
1: No, I'm I'm right there. I'm right there with you. I do lots of dumb stuff too. It's all kinds of fun.
2: Cool. Well, Um, that's that's the funnest part about it, isn't it? Just being an idiot and doing crazy stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do whatever's fun. Yeah.
0: So, i I've read about some of the work that you're doing before I even was aware of you and what you did, um, my introduction, or when I first came across what you do is when I was reading about the Prandtl wing and the whole concept of the proverse yaw and, and all of that. And I would like to get into that while we're doing it. Um, so huh? so here's kind of like what I'd like to talk to you about or we'd like to talk to you about tonight. Well, I'll say what I'd like to talk to you about because Mike and I have not really discussed anything. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk to you about your background. Um, you, you, who who are you? How did you get started in RC? How did you land this job at NASA? And what are some of the projects you've worked on and are working on currently? Um, that, that's that's my main focus of this discussion tonight. To sure, just to kind of give you a heads up. Yeah, we can do um, all that. Cool. So so. Where did you start with flying model aircraft? Well,
1: that's, a, that's a great question. Um, by far, my largest influence was my father. He was a model airplane guy and a full-scale pilot. Memories are in the garage with him building RC airplanes. RC airplanes in the 50s. And um, I was born in the early 70s. And I think my earliest memory is probably about three or four years old at the, at the park with my parents flying a kite. So I grew up around it. Um, it was never really a choice for me. I just sort of always knew that the airplane thing was in my blood, and that's what I really wanted to do. So um, while other kids were maybe out doing stuff they shouldn't have been doing, or even just out playing with their friends, I was usually in the garage um, building airplanes with my dad. So awesome. that's that's really where it all started. And um, I, I've been flying RC, gosh, I was just thinking about this earlier today because I was sure the question was going to come up. But... Um, it's been 40 years now since I have sold an RC airplane. <laughs> so, wow! Um, I'm I'm 46, so if you do the math, I sold when I was six years old. Wow! Um, yeah. Okay. It was, a, it was a plane for the old timers out there. It was a plane called a Mini Mambo, and uh, the radio system was a was a Heath kit that uh, actually my mother had built. She was an electronics tech for Hewlett Packard, oh, so wow. she was the only one in the family that could solder at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she built it for us and it, and it worked wow. so um you know it, it it's bred a lifelong passion of all things aerospace and um ultimately i have rc to thank for you know where i am today and what i do for a living so it's been a it's been a great uh career and more than a hobby for me for sure
0: yeah that's that's awesome man now you you uh, correct me if i'm wrong I, i'm not really sure on this but but like poking around on the internet you have a couple of rc airplane designs to your credit do you not
1: i do um that's one thing that i discovered early on as i love to scratch build and i love to design so um, i've dabbled in it i've never really taken it incredibly seriously but i've been fortunate enough to uh sell a couple designs and um, kit a few and you know do things like that so um uh, probably the most recent one or at least the, the largest um, visibly, commercial success would be the EF-1 racer called Invictus, uh, which was arfed by Hobby King. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, electric Formula One is a, is a racing class. I've always been oh, attracted to Wh- racing airplanes.
0: Which one was that? Invictus. Okay.
1: So it's uh, I believe it's discontinued now. Um, they sold them for, I don't know, a year and a half or two years, something like that. Did a couple production runs, and uh, they've moved on since then. Okay. Awesome. But uh, I've also kitted a bunch on my own. I have a laser cutter, and uh, you know, very early on, I was I was kitting a few airplanes, and I would have other folks cut my cut my kits for me. And then I decided that I really needed a laser cutter myself to do prototype work and things like that. And then that sort of turned into some small production runs. And every now and again, I'll be inspired and design something and kit a few of them. Uh, most recently, it's been a few little micro gliders, uh, 30 inch wingspan, balsa wood. Uh, sort of rehashes of some old classics like The Wanderer and The Windfree and a few others that haven't seen the light of day yet.
0: That's fantastic. That now you're talking my language. I, right? I love anything old balsa <laughs> and sailplane.
1: <laughs> well, well, for me, that that particular um, sidetrack or rabbit hole, whatever you want to call it, that I went down with those was uh, for sure reliving some of my youth. Uh, I spent a lot of time flying gliders when I was a kid. And, uh, I just sort of wanted to recapture some of that and put my own kind of modern twist on it with micro gear and and things like that.
0: So, um,
1: it's been great. I loved
0: it. That's awesome. That is awesome. That's really cool, man. Do you, do you have a favorite airplane?
1: Oh, well, that's a tough, that's a tough one. Um, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I have one favorite, um, I guess if I had to pick a, maybe a genre or a type, I'm, I'm really attracted to high performance stuff. And high performance can mean, you know, anything uh, within its own sort of realm, but for sure, pylon racing aircraft and sailplanes. Uh, however, that being said, um, you know, I consider something like Prandtl, which we're going to talk about later to be high performance, right? It's not necessarily fast, but it, it's high performance in its own special way. So I, I tend in to like terms, to push- In terms uh, of efficiency. Yeah, aerodynamic performance. Yeah, so so I sort of like to push the boundaries there, and um, you know, just do it whatever strikes my fancy.
2: Cool, that cool. So awesome.
0: Yeah. So, hang on. Let me get back on the Google Hangouts because I'm looking at the YouTube thing right now, and it's uh, <laughs> your mouth is moving, but you're not saying anything, so it's throwing me off. <laughs> <laughs> the delay. Can you do um, something about the, the fat cameras on me too? That makes me look
1: kind of like I weigh 400 pounds.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, dude. If you figure that out, let me know, okay? And I'd like to drop a couple years of age. I'm, I'm I'm 47 myself, so I'm right there with you, bro. Young bucks. <laughs> yeah. So do you, do you do anything full scale? Do do you, do you have a pilot's license? Do you fly? Do you have an interest? Or
1: I do. I do. I'm a pilot. Um i am currently designing and building my own formula one racer right now to compete oh. at reno oh so my gosh oh, wow. kidding me yeah no i'm not kidding that's that's for real
0: wow oh man so 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 something de- can you give us any details on this can you talk about it at all or are you trying to keep it all under wraps right now
1: uh it's, it's on the down low i haven't really released any drawings or um you know any concepts or anything like that but i will tell you that uh there's a lot of model airplane uh, Technique and construction in it. It's it's all hollow molded. Okay. Uh, it's it's all um, done, you know, in a traditional sort of model airplane style. However, obviously stressed uh, appropriately for the full, full scale environment. But um, one of the techniques that I'm that I'm using uh, is a way to keep it light and strong. You know, developed and definitely in the model airplane world, a lot of the airplanes that I've seen are are overbuilt. While they're completely adequate strength-wise, uh, they're probably a little bit heavy, so I'm really trying to target the 500-pound minimum for the aircraft. Um, I feel to be competitive, you've got to be right on the minimum, so I'm doing everything that I can to uh, build as lightly as possible. And that includes uh, you know, some pretty expensive materials, and it also means I've broken a few parts trying to figure out where the strength limits are. So. Um, you know, a couple of years down the road, maybe you'll see it flying. Maybe it'll be a failure. I don't know, but at
0: least I'm going to try. Oh, that's fantastic! That is that is really awesome. That's uh, that's one of my dreams is to build, uh, design, build, and fly my own uh, airplane someday. It's uh, funny. It's not if you're if you're a model airplane
1: guy. Um, I mean, you've already done it. You just haven't made it big enough where you can get in yet. All the same physics apply, and um, you've probably got more on the ball than the average. Home builder who's never done an ERC. You understand the flight mechanics and how the controls work and the basic forces of flight and all that kind of stuff. So um, I finally realized that uh, this was doable. For me, I always thought it was out of reach because I didn't have the, the structural engineering background. I wasn't worried about the aerodynamics. I wasn't worried about um, the design per se. I was always worried about the thing being strong enough so that, you know, number one, I didn't die. <laughs> once I realized that there's a method to test, um, and to design to then it all really becomes totally doable. So I'm super excited about it. And, and um that's really kind of curtailed a lot of my RC activity.
0: Oh, I bet I, so. I, I can imagine. Yes. Yeah. Um so we we had a we had a guy on uh as a guest not too long ago who who uh basically the same kind of story except he, he was just trying to build an ultralight uh from basic materials from from Lowe's, Peter Schreeple, I don't know if you yeah, I, follow, of I followed all. his
1: I followed his uh, video series, pretty cool stuff.
0: Yeah. Okay. Cool. So yeah, yeah. So he flew it, and uh, yeah, awesome. It, it is. It, it's it's a pretty little biplane, and uh, he's. It, it's funny that in this day and age, uh, as far as aviation has come, it, it's it's almost to the point where nobody has the confidence to do what people would have done back in early aviation just build it have the confidence to get in it and fly it um and and i guess there's a pro and a con to that um the pro to that is we don't have a lot of people being killed in airplanes these days and that's a good thing (laughs) the the con to that is that it 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 seems like uh it, it prevents people from like there are plenty of people out there who are capable of doing something like that, and capable of being innovative, and capable of designing a, a low cost, decently performing airplane. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's it, like I said. It's it's that's my dream. My ultimate dream. Um, one day is to do that. I I don't know if I'll ever do it uh, because I have a hard time focusing on anything for any length of time. (laughs) Well, the only thing I can say
1: is just go ahead and, you know, give it a try. Um, I thought much the same way. I have airplane ADD, right? I I can work on nine different things, not finish any of them, and be completely satisfied because I'm,
0: you know. uh, I I look around me, and that's all I see.
1: That
2: is absolutely (laughs) Patrick.
1: So the one thing that I I told myself is if I started this full-scale plan that I needed to dedicate my time to it, hundred uh, percent, which is not true. I, I can't do that. I've, I've still, you know, build RC planes and, and do other things too. But uh, I have found that the motivation is there because this is so different that um, I have been able to devote large chunks of time to it. And it has sort of satiated the appetite a little bit for the RC stuff. So I greatly reduced my RC fleet, even though my son uh would laugh because he counted 39 airplanes the other night when we were out in the garage but to me that's that's you know that's kits and you know things that haven't been built plus flying stuff so to me that's you know i have no airplanes (laughs) but (laughs) the normal people that's you know maybe a little obsessive but um you know i'm all electric at this point um just because they're they're quick and easy and um again i don't have to concentrate on the on the other side i sold my gas stuff i sold my turbines and that was really to just get rid of the distractions so that i could focus on a full-scale airplane because um it it really means that um you know i have to get it right um not only am i um building my own airplane but i'm also designing it and i'm also doing all the structure so if i screw that up you know i could be dead and even worse that's your bet on the line right yeah And, and even worse i could hurt somebody else which is the last thing i want to do so um, it demands a lot of concentration, and I, I have lots of help. Uh, fortunately, I work with some pretty smart people, so yeah. when i when I feel like I'm outside of bounds on any little thing, I've got lots of people I can ask, uh, particularly with regard to structure and a little bit of arrow help too. but um, gotta try it right? Yeah, nice.
2: well, and and, and you're in the right uh, environment as well to be able to to do that and have have the help there. Um, yeah. I mean, living in Kansas City, you know, I, I could never do anything like that because, you know, I don't, I don't think there's that many smart people here. <laughs> well, the thing
1: is, is, you know, just like we're doing now, um, the Internet is a fantastic place to, to read and learn. I'm, I'm a voracious reader. Uh, I credit all of my, um, I don't know if I want to call it skill or know-how or probably just just what I've learned has been through reading, be it various forums or uh, you know, books or whatever. Um, that's, that's how I sort of pick up my knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I, I'm a voracious reader. I read all the time and it's been a, a fantastic way to get educated.
2: Awesome. Sure. Um, well, I, I've got a, I've got a couple of a questions for you, uh, especially in your work at NASA. Um, you know, when you're doing all this, uh, um, I'm going to say RC stuff because really that's what it is. Um, Do you guys use hobby grade equipment or is it specialty equipment that you guys have put together yourself?
1: Uh, All of the above. So um, with the stuff at work, it's really kind of left up to me um, to figure out how we want to implement things. But typically we use off-the-shelf servos, off-the-shelf linkages, you know, same batteries. Uh, we build our own extensions and, and wiring harnesses and things like that. But mm-hmm. for the for the vast majority of the airplane part, not the research part, but the the, the command and control, um, stuff like that, it's off-the-shelf RC stuff. Now, there are autopilots on board. There are various other payloads and instruments
2: and things like that that all sure. have to play nicely. But um, they are, by and large, just big model airplanes. Yeah. So so I'm, I'm probably talking more about uh... – Transmitters, receivers, things of that nature. Is it mostly?
1: I use a JR twelve X and and mostly JR eighty seven eleven servos. So yeah, it's all it's all hobby grade stuff. Oh, awesome, awesome.
0: Good hobby grade
2: stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but it's, well, it's yeah, still
1: yeah. hobby grade stuff. Yeah, so, I, I mean, you gotta. Yeah, you tend to you tend to gravitate towards the the stuff that is higher end, and it's not because. Um, um, higher torque, for instance, or we're brand snobs or anything like that. But when you're doing research flying, um, it's all about, one, making sure it works so you get the data. So you buy quality stuff because quality stuff tends to not fail. Um, there's an airworthiness aspect to it. So some of these aircraft are several hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. And um, you can't have an out-of-control airplane due to a uh, you know an inexpensive servo or a cheap or something like that so you tend to use tried and true and um stick with it plus you know it makes spares easier if everything's the same then you, know, you just grab in the box and replace that
0: servo or whatever Yep. yeah
2: absolutely yeah
3: um,
0: yeah so what what are some of the uh the projects that you've worked on what what are some of the aircraft that you've you've flown or helped develop so uh,
1: Specifically at NASA or just over the years?
0: Well, I, whatever. Yeah, let's go with. (laughs) How much time do you have? (laughs) Anything you want to throw out there?
1: Well, so I'm relatively new at NASA. I've only been there about five years. Um, A little bit of history, though. Um, Let's see. And I'll have to think about the years, but I I don't remember exactly. But I owned a hobby shop for quite a while. Oh. And uh, a friend of mine who was a fairly well known sailplane designer. Uh, was working for a company called Arcturus Marine and uh, Arcturus is a navigation star. It's the third brightest in the constellation. uh, I can't remember exactly what, but anyway, it was a Marine company and, um, he was fairly well versed in composites. So he was building composite stabilization fins for the world's luxury yacht market. So they have essentially these big underwater wings Mm
3: -hmm. and,
1: um, They go on the bottom of these big giant expensive boats and they uh, move just like a a wing or an aileron would to stabilize these while they're underway so he developed that it turned out to be a great product line for this particular company and sort of uh they developed it figured out the science to design and implement these things and build them and then he was bored after that so it got to be a production environment where he could turn it over to somebody else and they just did production He convinced the owner of the company that UAVs were the next up-and-coming thing. And since he was quite experienced uh, building sailplanes, he uh, convinced him to let them design a UAV and try to market it. So the owner sort of invested some money. And the first project they did was just a simple set of wings for an existing airplane for the Navy. Actually, for the Navy Research Labs, NRL. And, uh, oh, did I lose you guys? Nope, you're still there. Okay. And anyway, so um, long story short, that turned into a whole, whole product line. And, uh, we, I, I, I was working at the hobby shop at the time. Uh, Mark knew that I was a fairly competent pilot and Mark was the designer, by the way. And he asked me if I was interested in doing some flight testing for them. So, um, I agreed. And that was just like a weekend thing. You know, they would get an airplane ready and we would go out and test it. And, um, I did that for a few years, two or three years figured out that I kind of liked what they were doing. It was a lot of fun, how uh, the pay wasn't bad. And at the same time, I was completely burnt out on retail. I just had enough, you know, every night, every weekend, it killed my flying hobby. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't any fun. So sold the store, actually I didn't sell the store. I, I sold all my inventory, closed the store, kept the name because I had a, a couple of RC kits that I was making under that name and went to work for Arcturus full time. Um, Long story short, uh, I worked with them for about 10 years. And uh, during that time, we would come down to NASA at Edwards Air Force Base and rent airspace from them to do test flying. No so kidding. Yeah, so that's how, that's how that introduction started. Um, and, you know, being the airplane geek that I am, I was always asking a million questions and wanted to go look at the hangars and show me what you got and tell me about this and let me look at that. And um, it all culminate, culminated in them offering me a job. Um, they had a model lab or have had a model lab since the 1950s. Um, Mm -hmm. it was started by a guy named Dale Reed, who was an RC modeler, um, had one of the very first RC sets here in the Antelope Valley. And, um, he's the guy that developed the lifting body. So the $6 million man thing, all that, that was all him doing it for fun on the side. And he (laughs) happened to have some eight millimeter movies that his wife had shot and he was showing around the office. Hey, look what I did on the weekend type of thing. And uh, it caught the attention of the center director at the time, Paul Bickel, and he agreed to fund this thing, this this research for this lifting body. So they agreed to work on it, you know, lunchtime, after hours, weekends, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, if you know anything about the lifting body series, you know it was fairly successful. A research program that eventually gave us the space shuttle. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm the latest guy to carry on that tradition uh, with, with the model lab and uh, doing yeah. research stuff for NASA. That's pretty so special anyway, Yeah.
0: Yeah. That cool is stuff. very special.
1: So they offered me the job. Um, and I told them, no, wasn't interested.
3: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so
1: I was, <laughs> I was living in Northern California at the time. And, uh, you know, I have, I have a family and they're all in school, things like that. Uh, so it would have involved a, a 500 mile move, uproot my whole family, that sort of thing. And, uh, I liked what I was doing. I loved working at Arcturus. I, I honestly thought I would retire from there. And um, over time, it took about a year and a half before I finally decided that it would be something I'd like to do. And I had visited them. I saw what they did. And of course, I was very much attracted to the job, but the, the fact of moving and all of that just didn't appeal to me. Uh, so I kept telling them no. So after about a year of this, I, I mentioned it to my wife. Um, I hadn't told her prior to this that Hey, you know, NASA offered me a job. And she says, Oh, really? Well, that's cool. Where's it at? And I said, Oh, it's down at Edwards. And and I said, Well, we'd have to move. And she says, Okay. <laughs> what do you mean, okay? She says, Okay, let's do it. Let's move. So wow. uh I'll I'll told it it took about a year and a half to uh convince me to to pull up my roots and, and go. And I'm glad I did. I don't regret it at all. It's been fantastic, and I'm sure this is the job I'll retire from.
0: So, yeah. where do you live now? I, 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 the reason I'm asking is, do you live anywhere near Mojave? Yeah, I'm
1: about uh, 40 miles from
0: Mojave. Okay, uh, I was in—I was at the Mojave Airport in 1986 when Rutan was building the Voyager, and, yep. and went in. I was in high school at that time. But I took a tour of the place, saw the thing being built. And that was the coolest airport I have ever been at in my life. I don't know if it's still as cool as it was back then. It's got a really cool vibe. Yeah. It was an amazing place. Oh, my gosh. Like, I remember an F-86 taxiing by. Like it was, it it was done up kind of like a drone. It had the orange on the tail and on the wings, and and there was an F one hundred and five tucked away in the corner over there, and you know various states of this repair. It and it was just the coolest place ever. And, and then Scale Composites had their thing going on. Uh, I don't know. To me, that that whole area is like definitely a mecca of aviation, and someplace sure. I'd love to get back to someday.
1: It still is, um, you know, of course, all the, uh, you know, the spaceship company and Virgin Galactic and all that, they're out there, along with Scaled, uh, along with the National Test Pilot School. And there's a there's a really big contingent of the home builder, do-it-yourself, um, a lot like the flight test community for full-scale type stuff, right? So, yeah, it still is just as cool as it was. There's a few more regulations and restrictions and things like that. But, yeah, it's still the same cool little desert airport um, out in the middle of nowhere where some really cool stuff is happening. Yeah. So to answer your question, though, I live in Palmdale. Um, Mojave is directly north of here on Highway 14. And um, yeah, it's, I don't know, maybe 30-minute drive or so, 40-minute drive, something like that.
3: Okay.
2: That's Yeah, that would be fantastic to go out there and hang out for a while. It is. They do, <laughs> it is. Um,
1: I'm friends with a few of the scaled engineers. Uh, they do pylon racing every other Friday. And I've only made one so far. It just happens to be, you know, there's always something going on where I can't get away. But um, a lot of good guys out there. If you're familiar with an airplane called an IFO, which is one of the mm-hmm. first sort of nearly indestructible indoor airplanes, um, that's designed by a guy named Dan Craig. He's a scaled engineer, good friend of mine, and um, they do some really neat stuff out there. Wow!
0: Yeah, that that that's is cool. just the coolest stuff ever. <laughs>
2: <laughs> really, yeah. I was trying to look through some of these. Uh, uh, a guy named Delta Dart on here is asking uh, what's typically added in terms of basic instrumentation packages on the models.
1: Oh, sure. So it depends on what we're doing. We have some purely RC airplanes um, that we use. Uh, for instance, we've got a carbon Z Cub and we use it for oh, a, a mothership, <laughs> right? It's a drop ship for some of our smaller Prandtl flying wings. Um, all the way up to things that are fully autonomous. So our, our basic autopilot is a, a Piccolo made by a company called Cloud Cap Technology. And it's kind of an all-in-one unit. It's got a full IMU package in it, uh, full aer- aerodata package, which is you know, a pitostatic system, and then um, integrated GPS and integrated command and control links. So that's the bare minimum usually for our autonomous stuff. And then it depends on what we're doing from there. We'll have several instruments can be um, you know, visual instruments, cameras, things like that. It can be atmospheric instruments. It can be uh, radars. Um, ADSB is a big thing right now. We're doing a lot of work with integrating unmanned aircraft into the national airspace with full-scale aircraft. Um, it can be enhanced data collection systems. So it really just depends on the project, but we, we basically start with a Piccolo autopilot system and then integrate from there.
2: That's awesome.
0: Speak, speaking of adsB and, and the integration aspect of things um, the, typically well by and large the hobby community is is very against the uh, registration uh, requirement that has now been I guess
2: reinstated, yeah. reinstated
0: yep yeah reinstated um, what are your thoughts on that well
1: so it's funny I, I walk the line right I'm an avid RC guy and I also do it for a living Um I'm, I'm with most of the community. I, I think it's overreaching and unnecessary. Um, you know, I think there is some some level of regulation is required, particularly with the proliferation of, um, you know, quadcopter type aircraft where they, they take very little skill uh, to go fly. And without that skill sometimes comes a little bit of a lack of judgment too. So right. I'm all for having them flying. Uh, but don't be doing stuff stupid with them, right? You know, you're getting away the, the firefighters, you're flying over people, yeah. doing that kind of thing. That's what I have a problem with. So, I don't know what the right answer is. Um, the wrong answer though was punishing everybody for the acts of few. But yeah. in absence of a better idea, I'm not sure what the what the right way to go is.
0: Yeah, and that's the unfortunate thing is that that it is a a very small minority. Very to to be uh, on the non cynical side, it's a very small minority of of people that are bringing things down on the rest of us to be on the cynical side. Uh, it, it, it's a money, another money making scheme by the government, um, you know, in a way of controlling whatever. Um,
1: Well, well I've been I, a long proponent of the AMA. I know people, some people like them, some people don't like them, but I feel if you belong to a CBO, a community-based organization of some sort, and they have an established safety track record and an established set of guidelines. That if you follow that, then you ought to be good to go. It's worked for decades, and um, now it doesn't. I, I would, I would venture to say, though, there's a lot of folks that have, um, a, never heard of the AMA, or, or, b, don't want to join because they have uh, something that they can fly out of a schoolyard or a field or, or something like that, in the non-traditional sort of model airplane uh, field club type sense. And uh, that's probably where where the sort of consternation comes from. I, I get that. Um,
0: yeah. My, my st- if if it were simple, which it's not, the the division in my mind should be: Do you make money with this? If this is your business, then we need a different set of regulations. If this is what you do for fun, then join the AMA or fly within a certain set of of reasonable boundaries um right and that's what we had for but, a while
1: with, with part 107 yeah. and the and the, the registration requirement going away and but unfortunately they felt like that's necessary to bring back so yeah well but,
0: and, and it, the problem is people weren't being reasonable i mean there was there are too many people like you said that are able to fly irresponsibly easily without knowledge of what they're doing
2: well yeah and, 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 and still yet, I mean, kind of like what Fred's saying here on the on the chat, um, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the FAA is selling it as a as a safety system. And just because I register don't mean I'm going to be safe necessarily. That's right. And to, to do that to me is 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 a little silly. Um, you know, I, I think I think in anywhere that you can buy something that's very easy to fly. You should, you know, they should give you like a quick set of rules. I don't know. I mean, there should be something that they give you with that thing. And
1: well, I think I think there's definitely a part uh lacking with the education. It could be something as simple as a a YouTube video, like, hey, do this, don't do that, don't be a jackass. Yep. And that's definitely you know lacking. Um the one thing I will say, you know, I see a comment here in the chat about if you don't have a giant balsa plane, the AMA fields they run you off. I think that's a common cop out and I think that's what a lot of people say, um, unfortunately without really experiencing that, um, in my opinion, or at least in my experience, it's been exactly the opposite. Clubs are shrinking. Uh, we have less and less young people coming into the community. So mm-hmm. I know at my club and the clubs I've been part of that, um, you know, we welcome people with open arms. I can't tell you how many times I've put somebody in a buddy box, just happened to show up with their kid and, you know, get them to try it out. So. Um, you
2: know, I don't know what to say. I know there's that, there's that connotation out there, but that certainly hasn't been my experience. Well, I I can tell you my own experience here in, in Kansas city. I actually, I live within 10 minutes of an AMA club and I went over there three or four different times trying to talk to those guys. And of course they were much older and I mean, much older than myself and they wouldn't even talk to me. Well, they can be clicky.
1: That's for sure. That's true with any group. You know, if you're, you're a new guy showing up and sometimes they don't, they don't take kindly to that.
2: Yeah. Well, I didn't even bring any airplanes with me. I wanted to try to find out a little about the club, let them know, Hey, I'm interested, blah, blah, blah. And they would not talk to me. And then, uh, I actually drove from, from where I live now. It's almost an hour, uh, to another club, uh, in a town I used to live in and, I rode up on a motorcycle with with my wife, and they grabbed me. You know, brought me up to the flight line. You have any airplanes? What do you fly? What do you? I mean, they were what I think you experience. Where I've experienced both ends of that spectrum, and I'll be honest with you, um, the club that I'm in now is, I, I probably will never leave it unless I move completely out of the area. But uh, uh, the club that's ten minutes from me, I won't even drive by there now, because I mean those guys are so unwelcoming. And- yeah, I guess it's I guess it's hit or miss,
1: you know. Um, uh, yeah, there's clicks in everything you do, I guess, right? Yeah. And for me, whenever I saw that, and, and I won't I won't pretend that it never happened in our club because I I witnessed it a few times, but I also went out of my way to let those people know. That, not only the the club members that were acting like that, but also the other folks, I'm like, Hey, this isn't, you know, this is not normal. And this is supposed to be a fun thing. And mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's RC has, uh, it's absolutely fun. I love the arrow. I love the building. I love the flying. I love all that stuff. But when it comes down to it, it's really the people mm-hmm. uh, I've met some of the best people I've ever known. And some of my best friends are folks that I've met through air modeling. So when I see that sort of, um, you know, that elitist attitude, which I see a little bit in the higher end parts, you know, I fly turbines and did some pattern and things like that. And, and they tend to get a bad rap, but there, there absolutely is some of that out there and and it's unfortunate. So you just got to do your best to, to overcome it and and spread the good word. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. And I guess the thing to do is do like you did, Mike, Go, go find another place that, that is welcoming because they are out there. I mean, my club, I, I, I'm currently not a member. I'm, Financially, I was not able to this year. Finally, I am again. Um, But a wonderful group of people, totally all about bringing people in, uh, teaching people to fly RC, teaching people to build RC. Um, But there are those out there that aren't. Um, So, you know, if you you find one that's not welcoming, go find one that is. I I guess that's the
2: thing. That's exactly what I'll tell anybody but you know it's it's definitely you know find one because those people that want you to be in the hobby want to grow the hobby and want to make it better and want to do it right and safer and all those things for the most part
0: (laughs) yeah 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 and and also it's important to 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 get with a club that wants to have a little fun too Mm -hmm. that's important um so, we've been we've mentioned the Prandtl wing a couple of times. I, I'm a huge flying wing fan. Uh, I love them. Um, I've I've built a few from scratch. Uh, some performed better than others. I, I built a couple that have been freaking outstanding, and I'm very <laughs> proud of that. And I built a couple that have been just awful. Um, so for for people that m- might be listening that that have never heard the term prandtl wing before c- can you explain what that is all about and why it is a really cool concept
1: sure absolutely well it's uh, first of all it's not a particular wing or even a design of a wing it is a it is a theory and how we redistribute the lift and this can work on any flying wing or any actual wing for that matter including propellers and, you know, wind turbines and any lifting surface can benefit from this technology. And um, what it is, uh, there was a, a, a German mathematician and fluid dynamicist named Ludwig Prandtl, And um, in 1920, yeah. he wrote a paper describing what he called lifting line theory, which is uh, basically the first mechanism, the first tool, the first uh, mathematical equation that you could use to predict the performance of a wing and turns out he was right <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's been taught in every college level text um, since then since his 1920 paper was published he was the first to describe tip vortices he called them vortex ribbons and um, basically what it says is that if you spread the load out over a wing it should be shaped so the wing is loaded in uh, in the shape of a quarter of an ellipse that's called an elliptical lift distribution that's what we've known since day one that that's the most efficient way for that wing to carry lift um, in 1933 uh, Prandtl wrote another paper and uh, in that it's a it's a non-elliptical or bell-shaped lift distribution that he's proposing it was a relatively short paper I think it's only four pages um, And about six equations or something like that not too much it was never translated into english until recently and it was published in a soaring magazine and in it he said you know lifting line theory and elliptical lift distribution is awesome but it's wrong um you have to integrate the weight of the aircraft the structure that it takes to lift that same amount of weight needs to be incorporated in it so if you keep the same root bending moment the same you know strain on the center of the wing Is there a way to arrange that structure that results in a lower induced drag? And the answer is yes. And it's a a non-elliptical lift distribution or bell-shaped lift distribution. And so uh, that's sort of as far as he took it. Um, There were other folks that sort of experimented with it along the way. I think last time we counted, there's about seven individual designs uh, that have flown successfully, both RC and in the full-scale world that demonstrate um, this trait of proverse yaw, which is incidentally a byproduct. It's not the reason that you do this in the first place. It just happens to work out that way. Uh, The first were the Horton brothers, and um, they're probably the most well-known of the flying wing experimenters. There are pictures of Reimar and uh, Ludwig Prandtl together in the same photograph, and the contention all along was that they knew each other and that they were corroborating on this thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's not one ounce of evidence that they ever shared uh, any data or anything like that. So uh, the assumption up until now has been that they were contemporaries, which they were, but they absolutely were not working on the same problem. Um, the Horton brothers did it a little bit differently um, to achieve this this Bell Span load than what Prandall proposed, and um, it's really, there, there have been a few people throughout history that have sort of uh gotten pieces of it and sort of continued on with the work but really the culmination is with al bowers who's chief scientist at NASA armstrong this is really his project um he's the brains behind it he's the one that figured out how to do this lift distribution and and turn into a formula where you could basically design anything around it or with it and i'm just the guy that figured out the structure and built the airplane and, and fly it so um and it all really started out about Al is a, a flying wing aficionado, but he's really trying to figure out why birds don't have vertical tails. You know, why is it that these models of flight that we've been staring at for thousands of years, none of them have vertical tails, but every one of our airplanes, for the most part, do have vertical tails. Yeah. And um, it, it turns out it's because they're they're not using an elliptical lift distribution. Um, so that's that's it in a nutshell i could i could probably talk for an hour
0: about this and i'll I'll certainly go into as deep as you like but i i as far as i'm concerned you could keep talking i'm i'm loving it all right well (laughs) first of all
1: anybody that's interested in it should go and download the nasa technical report that's got all the math in it um it's got all the technical equations um there is also uh, a link on the ama web page that's got the solid model i believe and, and all the calculations so you could build a Prandle uh, 12 and a half foot span. And I can, I can dig up that link here in a couple minutes and put it oh, in awesome. chat or something, something like that. But, um, do that. And that's, that's really where you probably start. Most yeah. people will f- probably find the report dense and maybe not get it. And it took me honestly a year of working with this thing before I really understood kind of all the details about how it works. So uh, I would urge you to ask questions. Um, you can reach out to me. You can publish my email if you like my, uh, my personal email and I'm happy to answer questions. I'm also fairly active on RC groups and there's a Prandtl thread there if you want to ask questions in there. But, um, so, so back to the bird thing, um, some birds use their tail for stability and control. They all use them for stability to some degree, but, but some of the terrestrial land soaring birds have a big broad tail, like falcons, eagles, things like that. And they do use them to maneuver but the uh the model for efficiency is actually the great wandering albatross uh these animals dynamic soar right and they can travel you know around the world in a season and come back to the area where they were nested from and they have what they call a vestigial tail it's not really a you know a feathered flying surface it's more of a we joke it's a it's a fairing for the landing gear it's kind of a meaty appendage that kind of looks like a tail but it's really not there for stability and control. So how are these birds able to maneuver so expertly that they can a dynamic soar, uh, on the swells in the ocean, Mm -hmm. but they also, if you, if you just Google the wandering albatross and look at some of the photos of it, uh, we ran across one well, several actually where they're dragging their wingtip in the water. Yeah. So, you know, they can, they can control, um, their flight path. So effortlessly, effortlessly, um, and with precision that, you know, Has so far eluded us, flying wings up to this point are known to have several traits. Um, The CG range is incredibly narrow. Uh, When they do stall, they do one of two things. They either tumble, your CG's too far aft, or they bob, or the nose will bob up and down. Mm -hmm. And typically they'll bob because you have to err on the side of being nose heavy in order for it to be stable. Um, Edwards Air Force Base, where I work, is named after Captain Glenn Edwards, who was killed in the YB-49 when it tumbled out of control. Yeah. So, historically, flying wings on the surface are so beautiful, they're elegant, uh, they're very bird-like, they're pretty, and they look so simple, yet um, to get great performance out of them, it's a pretty tough challenge. So, uh, you know, this, this Prandtl technology is a complete departure from the normal, traditional way of designing a wing. Um, a few of the characteristics are Proverse which we talked about earlier and I can explain how that happens uh, relatively simply. Well,
0: let's let, I think most of where a lot of people are familiar with the term adverse y'all. So and they they think of it this way. Okay, so you have a wing, you go to make a turn, one aileron is going to drop, one's going to raise. One is going to cause drag, so it 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 doesn't it, it, you got to add rudder to make a coordinated turn is basically i guess because of the drag on one side of the wing
1: yeah so if you think about how an airplane creates lift right there's a a low pressure on top and a relatively high pressure on the bottom and when you roll an airplane you deflect the ailerons your downward side aileron let's say you're making a, a left turn or a left roll your right side aileron goes down into the higher pressure zone so as you deflect that aileron the plane rolls left but the right wing is being drugged back. So you roll one way and it yaws the opposite way. Right, And that's called adverse yaw. Um,
0: and, and is, is that because, okay. So when you drop the aileron, you're inducing it, it's, it's greater camber. Yes. So are greater you left. inducing more like, what is that a uh, parasitic drag or what, what is that? that well, your that hands, you... your hand says vorticity. Right.
1: That's what and, I'm saying. Yeah. yeah so, so when you deflect that aileron, um, since the wing is creating lift, right, you have the, again, the higher pressure underneath and the lower pressure on top. So as the aileron deflects downward into that higher pressure zone, it gets drug aft. Okay.
0: So, so it's it's simply a putting the barn door out in the slipstream. Yeah, an air brake.
1: Yeah. So it's if like your that. other okay. side aileron, right, your, your left side aileron is up, that's in the relative lower pressure zone. So the downside aileron has more drag than your upside aileron does. That's okay, why air yeah, differential exists, right? You, you, you're familiar with differential where you have yes. more up travel than you have down travel. It's it's precisely to counteract adverse yaw. Okay. Um interestingly enough, the vertical tail was invented by the Wright brothers. Um their early have designs, Wright
3: brothers Day! Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they um you know, their early gliders were were no vertical surface on them whatsoever. And uh they figured out that um they called it well digging or well drilling, where they would roll one direction, and the aircraft would slide off sideways, hit the ground, and, and break up, and they'd have to repair it. They also invented the off-string, by the way, too. So some of the very early photographs you can see a string on the aircraft. So the vertical which is, tail, which
0: is a really simple turning bank indicator, in a sense, right?
1: Yes, it's it's strictly a, a, a yaw indicator. So um, when you're a pilot and you're looking out the front of the it's aircraft. The it's the, it's the string, you want to keep that string right in line. Yeah, you know, the, the ball is a, a coordination indicator too, which is basically the same thing. So um, they invented the vertical tail and it sort of stuck. It's a, it's a very effective way to control yaw and add stability um, as a result of that elliptical lift distribution and this adverse yaw problem that's prevalent on you know, 99.9% of the aircraft on the planet. So along comes Prandall, and um, he, he postulates this theory, but he never builds an airplane, and he really kind of drops it completely. He never really did anything with it. And so a few guys dabbled with it, and um, to my knowledge, nobody ever built an aircraft demonstrating Prandall's theory until uh, we came along. And, and actually, Al had an intern prior to me who built a Klingberg wing, which is a two-meter wooden flying slope wing and he redesigned it to use this lift distribution and um, that as far as i know is the first aircraft to ever demonstrate uh, Prandtl's theory and proverse yaw uh, because of Prandtl's theory there have been other aircraft that have demonstrated proverse yaw but not coupled with Prandtl's theory so uh, i have i don't know if you can see it but i have a little Prandtl wing right here Um, this is one of the very early Concepts that we had for a Mars airplane. We're working on a a Prandtl M right now, which is the Mars project Mm -hmm. And this is a 24 inch span airplane Um, the idea is currently to still package this in such a way that um, You can fit it inside of a cube satellite enclosure specifically a 3u which is three cubesats stacked together and it can ride as nose ballast on the next Mars mission and this will get ejected in the upper atmosphere and glide down to a certain landing point and map the proposed human landing site and do some atmospheric research as well. But this is this is basically the Prano wing that you've probably seen, but scaled down to 24 inches. Um, we've go- since gone away from this because you can see it, it's a tiny little thing and you can't carry much payload here. Right. But the interesting thing about this is um, uh, when I designed it, I, I had in mind a way to package the airplane. So how do you get a 24 inch span thing inside of a four inch cube? And the idea was you could take this thing and it's like a, it's a single surface, um, one layer of carbon fiber and some fiberglass uh, stiff enough to carry flight loads, but not stiff enough that you can't take it. Let's see if I can get it on camera here and you can roll it up.
2: Oh, my God. Oh, wow.
1: So, so you do this, hell. right? And now you can fit this inside of a little a little tube or whatever. OK. And
0: for for those of, of you uh, listening on and not watching, he he just took a twenty four inch, uh, red just took a twenty four inch flying wing, rolled it up, let it go, and it went right back like like those silly little bracelets you just slap on yeah. your wrist.
1: Funny idea. That that's that's where I came. Awesome. That's that was my inspiration. Um, that on a tape measure, they both do the exact same thing. So
3: Dude, you're you using are
1: the
0: a hero. <laughs> <laughs> that's
3: <is laughs> well- awesome.
1: Yeah, it's just, you know, you mess around with stuff long enough, you figure some things out. So uh, you use the camber of the airfoil to actually become the structure of the wing. And luckily, it's stiff enough. So um, it just happens to work out. So we've gone away from this, though, for reasons I can talk about later. But, um, you know, it's a great idea, but it just didn't work. So it's fine for for little stuff.
2: That is Uh, just unbelievable. So this is just a free flight,
1: you know, a little Chucky. So cool. Yeah. But anyway, back to, um, I, I realized I didn't explain how and why that, Proverse Yaw works. So, uh, when you're designing an, an airplane and you're using the elliptical lip distribution, one of the goals is even downwash behind the wing. You want an even amount of downward deflected air after the wing. Um, and that's where you get your minimum induced drag. from. with a, with a, lift distri- a bell-shaped lift distribution, uh, you actually get downwash towards the center of the wing in here, and then it crosses over into upwash at about 70% of half of the wingspan. I don't know if I can get back here far enough where you can see what I'm doing with my fingers. So um, traditional elliptical, you want even downwash all behind the wing. And with the bell-shaped, it's, it's downwash, and it transitions to upwash. So the whole wing still makes a lift, but your your uh, upwash becomes, or your downwash becomes upwash. And, and that has to do with the way that the air is approaching the wing. Um, when it when it approaches a wing, it actually turns upward slightly uh, out near the wing tip. So if I can, uh, and, and the way we achieve this lift distribution, by the way, is with twist. You can also do it with, um, plan form so you can shape the wing to sort of resemble this this um this plan form most famously the spitfire is an elliptical plan form and that's a way to get an elliptical lift distribution purely through shape uh you can blend airfoils you can twist so this is a lot like i don't know if you can see right down the tip here this is a lot like extreme oh, yeah. washout
3: yeah but it's
1: yeah. but it's more than that this is twisted about 12 degrees
2: yeah i can see the twist in it
1: And it's also nonlinear, which means it's not a a completely straight progression from root to tip. Um, If you were to visualize the tip or the center is slightly positive. uh, I'm sorry, slightly negative. It goes a little bit positive here and then twists all the way back to negative at the tip. So now when you have this plane that's flying through the air with the upwash, um, out at the wingtip and the downwash in the center. When you deflect the aileron that same direction, you're now deflecting it. Your downside aileron is now into the upwash. Uh, I'm sorry, into the downwash, which is less drag. So when you deflect, you increase the lift, but you reduce drag. So when you roll left, you also now yaw the same direction, left. And so that's where the proverse yaw is generated. It's not from. I've seen some comments online. It's not from. The control surface per se but the control surface is outside the this crossover point incidentally in a normal wing uh you get and i'm explaining this poorly i'm all over the map here but um, in a normal wing you get a wing tip vortice and that's why you see the winglets on airliners mm-hmm. so you have the high pressure air underneath the low pressure on top span wise flow takes it along the span it hits the tip and it starts to mix. So the high pressure pushes up and starts to roll when you, you get the wing tip courtesy. The winglet is there to take advantage of that. The, the air rolls up, hits the vertical part of the winglet, and gives a slight little push, almost like a sail on a sailboat in some ways. You get a little bit of forward push, and that's really a reduction in drag. And that's why you see um, a lot of high performance sailplanes that are span limited, uh, airliners that are span limited. You know, they have to fit it within gates at the airport. They use these winglets um otherwise you would just increase the span well this really works like a flat winglet so at the point where the downwash becomes upwash that's where your vortices forms so your vorticity actually forms here so your control surface is placed outside of the vorticity and that's what generates the proverse yaw
0: so there there is very little mixing of high pressure to low pressure at the wingtip or or none at all
1: uh, as far as we can tell there is none at all well very little um there might be some leftover effects uh from the vortice itself one of the one of the neat things about this airplane is that on a typical airplane that's highly loaded or elliptically loaded you'll see a very tight um very highly constrained high energy vortex that's yeah. why if anybody's a full-scale mm-hmm. pilot. They talk about wake turbulence, things like that, you know, taking off between behind a, a heavy aircraft can be problematic because they generate these these vortexes that are a huge amount of energy. Well, with this lift distribution, the vortex is, is bigger and more loosely constrained. Um, so you get less energy lost to the air. So all that vortex is all lost energy. Right. So that's where part of the efficiency comes from as well. Um, so with this. And again, if you if you download the paper and if you go to the AMA site, you can see some tests we did where we we basically it's kind of like tufting the airplane, but we put um, VCR ribbon tape behind the trailing edge of the wing and flew the airplane. And you can see exactly where the vortex is forming and where it quits out at the very tip. Um, so your tip losses uh, on a traditional wing are something you really have to account for. They're they're much less critical on elliptically. Loaded. I'm sorry, a non-elliptically loaded wing. So your vortex is looser, um, less energy. Uh, so it's not nearly as critical.
0: And uh, okay, so structurally, how does this drive the the structural design of a wing? I, what I'm thinking is your heavy stuff is inboard, and then as you get outboard, it it kind of mimics that same distribution where you have some very wispy things on outboard of the wings well it could be in terms of weight and structure
1: yeah it could be if you really wanted to optimize the structure you would do that and um a big clue to that is if you look at birds um, if you look at an x-ray of a bird's wings or look at a bird's skeleton you know the outer 20 or 30 percent of their wing are fingers essentially Mm -hmm. right they're these very light wispy feathers and if a feather you could take it and they, they bend very easily well that would be in the elliptical world that would be equivalent to carrying 10 or 20 percent of your body weight on your fingertips right i can't do that
3: really? uh, i don't know any, i don't know any human that can do that <laughs> right
1: so um you know that was a big clue for us right there that there's not much load out of the wingtips. so if you wanted to design the wing purely from a structural standpoint to mimic the load then yes you would have uh, more structure shifted inboard because your, your load center shifts inboard more towards the root. same root bending moment but your your load is further inboard right. and less uh, outboard to uh, basically zero so with an elliptical lift elliptic distribution your as your uh, your loading comes down very abrupt, abruptly at the tip that's where the end of the ellipse is right it's almost vertical right at the right at the wing tip. Whereas with a, a non-elliptical load, it's very gentle and and, uh, and that is backed up wash out there and not down wash. Yeah. That is uh, – that
0: <laughs> that's, that's very cool. So so there are there are plans out there or something somebody could download to actually build one of these or, or – Yeah, whatever. you want to give me a couple
1: seconds, time. I can Google around here and
0: find it. If, um, yeah, yeah, actually – i got i gotta i gotta make a run upstairs uh i'll be back in just a sec all
2: right mike all right.
0: you're in charge buddy
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh you gonna let the crazy run the asylum are you yeah we've got a couple of people asking about where they can get that and i'm gonna have to yeah. i'll have to post it on our uh on our facebook page because for whatever reason youtube won't let you uh copy links out there so if you would, Red, when you get that, just post it into the chat in the uh, in the Hangout, and then I will take it out to uh, the, uh, for everybody listening, I'll take it out to the uh, uh, the Facebook link to this live.
1: Sure, it's yeah. out there. I just popped it in. And uh, Bobby's comment about the twisted tip of the wing is creating the cone shape of its vortice, and they're creating the vortices so that they can control it. Um, s- sort of. We're not creating the vortices. We are moving the shed point of the vortices from the wingtip in forward. There's always going to be a vortice. We're just, we're just moving where it's at. and we're um,
2: moving where it's at and then trying to take advantage of what's there, right? And you're
1: taking advantage of it by placing the control surface outboard of it. Uh, the other thing to note is that there's not just twisted the tip. that The entire wing is twisted. And again, it's a nonlinear twist. So it's not just a straight progression from the root to the tip right so i just uh type the name of the of the program uh, it's called prandl it's says ludwig prandl ludwig prandl um, i can also look up the technical report and link that to um, it's called on the minimum minimum induced drag of birds or something i can't remember i should know i'm i'm an author on it <laughs> I think I found it give me a second here
2: okay yeah sorry guys there's a little bit of dead air, but you know when you're trying to copy stuff and do all that and search a little bit that yeah, here we go happen. I
1: found it so let me link it
2: yeah that'll be fantastic I'll put it out there on our Facebook page where people can go
1: there you go it. there's the technical report so between those two links that'll give you pretty much everything you need I, I would expect someone will want to answer Or ask questions. Maybe I should just go ahead and put my
0: email in there. Is that cool?
2: Um, as long as uh, YouTube will let you do it, I don't know. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes sometimes YouTube's
0: weird about links and such. Yeah. Yeah, I see it grayed
1: out the uh, AMA link, but the technical paper link is there.
2: Cool. Yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, there's your email. Bread the alien. I like it.
1: My uh my little side business is alien (laughs) technologies.
3: Yeah.
0: So, uh, yeah, I I just the whole idea of when I heard the term Prandtl, it it was really interesting because it took me back to one of my favorite classes in college, which was uh, heat transfer. Uh, that 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 is the only other that's the only time I've heard of Prandtl. Um, yeah, the Prandtl number, newsletter number, and all that good stuff. Anyway, uh, oh God, I love that class.
3: heat so, transfer
0: so, fluid dynamics and thermo good yeah. stuff
1: so fluid dynamics is you know that's arrow right that's air is a fluid yeah, so it's a, a different yep. characterization of that um Prandal's well yeah. known in the arrow world i mean he's pretty much the guy right but um yeah interesting
0: stuff yep yep so what are uh, what are some of the other projects you've worked on or are working on, if, if you can talk about those? Oh, yeah, I can, I can talk about all of it.
1: Everything we do is, um, you know, for the public. We, we do the research, usually write a paper in some sort and then publish the data for the public to see. Mm-hmm. And um, nobody's asked in the chat here, but I've run across the comments before, well, why does NASA patent their stuff? And that's a really easy question to answer in that we patent it so somebody else can't patent it. Uh, and we put it out there in the public domain so that everybody can use it so unlike um, some unnamed manufacturers of full-scale aircraft when they make an innovation they'll patent it so that they don't have any competition we patent it so that everybody can use it so um, that's that's that in a nutshell uh, let's see we're working on a um an air launch to orbit concept where um, you take a rocket and it has some sort of a payload on it and you've got to get it into right now we're just looking at low earth orbit, but you know, communication satellite, something like that needs to get into orbit. Right now it costs about $100,000 a pound to put something into orbit. Um, And that's that's very expensive. And that that number um, is not a hardware number. It's not, that's not what the rocket costs. And, And what it is, is the amount of manpower that it takes to launch a rocket from a terrestrial based launch complex. You know, Vandenberg here in California, Cape Canaveral in Florida, airspace you've got to have um, sterile sea range where there's no boats you have to have people to patrol it. you've got to have all these other folks on staff to monitor the meteorological conditions um, to do. You've heard them talk about weather windows right where you have a certain amount of time to launch. You also have to wait sometimes for the earth to be in the right position to launch a rocket. So all of these constraints add up to making uh, space launches very very expensive. Uh, It turns out that if you can air launch uh, a rocket, you know, from 30 or 40,000 feet, that you save a tremendous amount of money, um, not only in range safety costs, but um, you can also go where the weather isn't. Or you can go to a more favorable launch location for your orbit inclination. Mm -hmm. For instance, uh, the closer you get to the equator, uh, the more of a head start you can get up to 5,000 miles an hour. So it really opens up doors to be able to launch from the air.
0: Is is that uh, simply because of the uh, the diameter and the rotation of the Earth? Yeah, so you, absolutely. You're absolutely. spinning faster when you go off the planet.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. So you know, out at the equator, you're spinning the fastest relative to uh, your orbit, um, and that's all free velocity.
2: Unless you're a flat earther.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to say. <laughs> it. Don't get me started on that. Those in,
1: those inchembysels drive me nuts.
2: Oh my god.
1: <laughs> Yeah, funny. <laughs> anyway, Sorry. so um, you know, air launching is is not a new thing. Uh, it's been done before. Um, mm-hmm. There's a company called um, Orbital Sciences, I think, is their name. They have a Lockheed l 1011 which is a full scale airliner,
3: yep.
1: and they can put a rocket underneath the wing, and they do air launch. Um, you know, Virgin Virgin uh, Galactic and the spaceship company they air launch their spaceship one, spaceship two, right? So that's not a new concept. Uh, what we've done, however, is taking a look at optimizing that. How do you air launch um, to get a little bit more efficiency? It turns out that um, direct carry, where you're, you're an airplane carrying a rocket, is not the most efficient way to go. Um, if you think about a pickup truck and you've got your 20-foot you know, or 22-foot family boat, right? there's a reason it's on a trailer and not in the bed of the pickup truck. Um, you can tow a trailer much more efficiently than you can directly carry that boat in the bed of your pickup truck so our idea is to take a very high lift to drag ratio vehicle uh, essentially a a glider and um, put a rocket underneath that and then tow that whole package up with some other airplane so uh, you know they have scaled has white knight right and there's exactly one of those in the world it's pretty specialized piece of hardware and they're building the new one, the big yeah. giant one, Strata Launch, right. which should fly anytime, I understand. Um
0: is, is is that at Mojave?
1: It is, yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. And, yeah, and it's, is it it's really huge. the largest hangar door in the world?
1: I believe it is. It is the largest okay.
0: airplane in the world.
1: Um I've been fortunate enough to see it and it is absolutely massive. So if you take a um a ratio-type vehicle, and you hang a rocket underneath it, then you can tow it with some other aircraft. Um, You know, civilian aero-towing has been around since, what, the 50s or maybe before, certainly before that and World War II and things like that. But, you know, Piper Cub will easily tow a glider that's much, much larger than it. And, um, you know, it can do that happily because the glider is so much more efficient than the tow plane. Well, now if you take that same glider and you take the pilot out of it, make it unmanned, um you again get a a further reduction in cost Um, some of them are obvious and some of them aren't so obvious some of the obvious ones are you now you don't need a propulsion system so that means you don't need to carry fuel um if there's no pilot in it doesn't have the cockpit doesn't have to be heated or cooled uh there's no ejection seat there is no cockpit for that matter um you can have an electric airplane which means not electric propulsion but electric flight controls now you don't have to have uh, hydraulics you don't have to have all the associated actuators so your whole your whole airplane, your launch vehicle, or your, your tow vehicle, sorry, not your tow vehicle, but your carry vehicle becomes much, much more expensive. I'm sorry, inexpensive.
2: Inexpensive, lighter. And lighter.
1: Yeah, and lighter. Um, now, some of the costs that people don't think about it are that um, traditionally with a, a terrestrial-based launch complex, your rocket, um, especially if it's air-launched, has to be man-rated. That means that there's some level of certainty that it's not going to blow up and take the flight crew with it. Right. Even if you're launching an unmanned satellite, your, your airplane that's carrying it, um, or even the launch pad for that matter, um, you know, needs, needs to be protected in the case of a failure. Well, with an unmanned aircraft, um, you know, that's not such a high risk. So now your, your rocket, your launch vehicle doesn't need to be manned-rated. So again, there's a cost savings there. Um, and we haven't even gone to the part where you save, 30% 30% or so roughly of your fuel um, because you're air launching in the first place. So you couple all those things together and we think we can put something into orbit for about $10,000 a pound. Wow. So um, that's a long story. You asked what I was working on. Um, we have a uh-huh. r- roughly one third scale model concept of a. it's a 27 foot wingspan glider, and uh, it's a twin fuselage design. So something like straddle launch um, it has kind of an inverted V in the center wing and um, you know you'd hang a rocket underneath that you tow the whole affair up to some altitude you cut the glider loose the glider drops the rocket the rocket goes off into space and then the glider comes home so totally reusable launch vehicles uh, your tow plane can be any number of different things and uh, all that coupled together works to reduce the the launch costs yeah, that's, and
2: and that's your tow cool. vehicles far enough or your yeah, your tow vehicle's far enough away from everything that if something was to fail, you have a much better yeah. chance of, of not having any issues.
1: That's right, and then the actual launch is decoupled anyway, so the glider's in free flight mm-hmm. uh, when it makes its launch. And so, you know, in the full-scale world, we're envisioning something like a C-17 or a pair of C-17s. You could put the payload, the rocket, into one C-17. You could put the glider in another C-17. You could be anywhere in the world you wanted in, you know, a day or two. Uh, to get a, a favorable launch inclination and the right weather window. And again, just makes the whole thing portable, reusable, and less cost. That's amazing.
0: Very cool. Um,
1: so Delta Darts talking about the F-106 and C-141 project. Yeah. Um, that's called Project Eclipse. And um, I have a very good friend of mine at work was an engineer on that project. And he's got some fantastic stories. They also called it dope on a rope.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so that was a, uh,
1: there, there's, there's, papers out there on that too if you are interested in reading it but uh, the project is called eclipse if you want to research that a little bit more so uh that, that program is called um tgals toad glider air launch system and in the world of horrible horrible acronyms that's one of them i suggest you do not google that without some sort of safe search on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's so you know look for Toad Glider Air Launch that's much better but, but T-Gals it's bad. And do not
0: type in T-Gals. You yeah, might get something not. with a surprise.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a surprise. <laughs> so um
0: packing a little bit extra there um, are you. Yeah.
1: So there was there was that I was actually hired in the very beginning that was the project I was specifically hired for. That that project had languished for some time. Um, they actually never had a flyable prototype. And uh, since then, we've built a couple different airplanes. And um, last I heard, there may be a company that's ready to start building a full-scale flight oh. demonstrator. So, oh, cool. nice. yeah, pretty cool so, stuff.
0: So is the glider just a, uh, a conventional glider with, with the rocket strapped underneath? or uh, Sort of. It's, it's
1: two fuselages with typical stock outer wing panels. And then the center wing is an inverted V that's custom. And in the center of that V, there is a uh, custom-built fuselage that carries the rocket. So um, okay. there might even be a picture online here.
2: Yeah, I saw it on. Uh, actually, saw the video of you guys towing it on the Facebook. Um, yeah. The Air Force or the. Um, oh, I can't remember where I saw it at now. Yeah,
1: here's some. I'm going to just link a, um, a Google search I did. There's a, some artist concepts in there, but on the second second uh, line, or even the first line, there's some photos of the actual vehicle there
0: let's see here
2: i've graded out uh yeah it's not gonna let me post it yeah most of those links won't work in the youtube chat you can put them in over in the uh in the hangouts chat where uh i put the youtube originally yeah there you go and then what i'll do is, is i'll copy that and put that in the uh uh oh yeah okay cool I'll put that in the uh, in the Facebook yeah. um, comments as well
1: yeah there you go so let's see that's
2: that <laughs> is slick
1: <laughs> yeah, it's different for sure um so
0: I'm right now i'm looking at a picture it looks what i'm looking at looks like a picture of two full scale gliders married together
1: that's the idea yeah that,
3: that.
0: okay
1: again so you can use off-the-shelf right. components with a minimum of custom built stuff and uh, keep the cost down nice
0: and what size rocket are you guys looking at with that
1: uh, we're not looking at any I mean, particular you- size we're basically trying to develop the technology and the concept to let okay. other folks, you know, do it. Our, our goal is private industry, um, you know, to be able to okay. take this and, and run with it. So somebody like SpaceX or something like yeah, that? Yeah, whoever, you know. Um, everybody needs cheap access to space. It's the way of the future, and, and we're trying to do our part to make that possible. That's cool. That's
0: awesome. so, so obviously NASA doesn't feel like the, the private sector is a competitor then.
1: Um, no,
0: I don't, I don't
1: think so at all. I think there's still some stigma that the private sector maybe is not, um, not up to the challenge of all of the oversight and all that sort of stuff, um, for space flight. And I think there's some, you know, lots to learn there. There there are people that would argue that, um, space flight is hard. Well, there's nothing to argue there. It is absolutely hard, but, you know, people like NASA are really the, the right people to do that and that um, you know unfortunately some of the accidents we've seen are a result of a little less stringent um, oversight know, NASA gets a lot of crap about uh, how much things cost and how much oversight there is and, and that which I get but it's also the reason why we, we tend to kill less people you know we, we take that okay. very seriously yeah yeah gotcha
2: all right let's see what else do i have i know i got some other stuff on here Uh, so for just general public what's probably the most recognizable thing you've worked on
1: um boy, that's hard to say um you know in the rc world I guess the the largest commercial success I would say is the Hobby King thing, the, the Invictus EF1. Yeah, the Invictus. I also did. I don't I don't know if you guys have been around long enough, but maybe ten years ago or twelve years ago, there was the whole flying boat craze where there were there were uh, hydroplanes yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that actually flew. They looked like an unlimited hydroplane that you'd race on the water, and then mm-hmm. they would take off and like fly Miss around. Like Budweiser
2: stuff yeah. like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, my design was called Miss Hanger One, and I sold I don't know five or six thousand of those things. Um, that was fairly. Oh that's cool. <laughs> yeah, it absolutely burned me out. I did it all myself in my garage. My wife helped me and my kids helped me and uh, but man that was that was a lot of work. that's a that's a great way to ruin your hobby.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then uh, you know as far as NASA goes, I would say that that uh, t gals or toad I like to call it toad orbital asset delivery instead of some other funky name. and Prandtl are probably the the most highly visible things that, that I have done, yeah. um, although there have been a ton of other smaller projects that probably don't get the same amount of recognition that are equally important, um, some really neat stuff. Uh, things like Auto GCAS, which is autonomous ground collision avoidance software. So that's a system that um, takes control of the airplane when it's in imminent danger of impacting terrain. Now, okay. right now, you you can get an app for that, right? You can go to the Google, Google store, or the, uh, iTunes and download a collision avoidance app right now. The difference is, uh, we developed software and an algorithm that will actually take control of the airplane, um, in the event the pilot doesn't. So for instance, in the military, there's a certain thing called G lock, which is G, G induced loss of consciousness where you pull so many G's that you pass out. And, um, uh, you know, it kills, it kills pilots around the world every year. Um, Perfectly good pilot, perfectly good airplane. It hits the ground for no good reason. So uh, what we did um, at work is the engineers wrote an algorithm that would take uh, DTED, which is standard military terrain data uh, in its database, and feed it into the autopilot. So the airplane uh, not only knew where it, where it was at in 3D space, right, so it has a terrain map and all that kind of stuff in it, but it also knows the performance of the aircraft, so it knows the energy state, What's the tightest radius turn it can pull? How many Gs can it pull? Uh, what's the climb rate? What's the descent rate? All those sorts of things. And combines it into this system that will take control away from the pilot should he not avoid an obstacle. Oh, wow. And the cool thing is it c- continuously computes a um, you know escape plan. So it's not just one set maneuver to avoid <laughs> some certain <laughs> obstacle. You know, If you're flying up a box canyon, it's smart enough to know that maybe it can't climb over the wall, but it will move over to the side to give you enough room to do a 180 degree turn and come back out the other side, Um, all independent of the pilot. So um, that was done, you know, essentially with a model airplane with an Android phone and uh, some (laughs) software running on it. And that's been been, um, successful enough that it's fielded right now on F-16s and F-22 and F-35 come right out of the factory with that software loaded. So we know of um,
3: at what least if, what six if,
1: lives that have been saved because of the system. What if the pilot has an iPhone? What What's he do then? <laughs> Don't even need a phone anymore. It's just, it's just all loaded. But um, uh, if you, you know, there's, there's um, a, a YouTube video out there of an F-16 guy doing some air combat training at Hill Air Force Base. And he passes out, loses consciousness. And the aircraft is in full military power, so it rolls over nose low go supersonic headed roughly straight down Mm. and uh, the, the system took over, uh, pulled level, the wings pulled up and then got him back above uh, his hard deck and essentially saved his life. He, he comes to has no idea what's going on. And he finally realizes that, uh, you know, he had blacked out uh, pretty interesting stuff. And I can probably put that link in here too.
3: uh, if You guys want to see
1: it crazy. Um, there's a whole myriad of other stuff that we do. You know, um, everything from pilot training and currency. We're, we're qualified just like the full-scale pilots are. Uh, obviously, not as stringent, but we have to go through the same the same processes um, and the same checkouts. They have to you know have to take a check ride, and you have to get a medical clearance and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, we do that. Um, we also fly. You know, an S one thousand multi rotor to take aerial photos of the center and different things like that. Um, there's there's tons of little research projects that go on in between all the rest, where maybe you just want to get a uh, you know a nice a nice picture, or maybe you want to fly a, a new radar system and see how it works. Um, there's just all kinds of stuff like that.
2: So so do you do uh, much, uh, if any, uh, first person view flying or?
1: We do, um, particularly with the twin glider setup, uh, you know, because we're dropping this hundred plus pound rocket, um, you tend to not fly within line of sight.
3: Yeah.
1: We're also, we're okay. also towing. So if you can just think about the, the dynamics of an autopilot controlled vehicle, um, having one autopilot controlled vehicle follow another autopilot controlled vehicle to tow is not a, it's not a trivial task. So I'm what we that. do is we will automate the tow plane where it flies an autonomous racetrack, and then I'll fly the glider initially within visual line of sight, but eventually I transfer over to an FPV setup. Um, although I just use a, a monitor, I don't use goggles, yeah. and um, you know follow the tow plane out to the launch area, and then we'll we'll drop out there. Wow! So um, it's a combination of all of that. Yeah. Okay. Like, oh, no, for instance, we were doing you. some head tracking, Sorry. Uh, not necessarily head tracking, but, you know, uh, pan tilt type camera work, you know, a long time ago before that was really common in the RC world. Sure. Um, we, we thought that that was probably a good way to sort of get better situational awareness as any FPV or knows you have a limited field of view. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unlike a real airplane, right. where you can turn your head and look around, things like that. So we we're trying to improve that. So we did some work with that. Um, you know, the other thing we're working on in the Prandtl series is the Mars project where we're trying to fly these little planes on Mars. And there's a lot of challenges there. Um, one of the largest being, uh, one, how do you navigate on Mars, right? If you if you want to drive to another state or cross town or whatever, what do you do? You, you punch in your yeah. your address yeah. into GPS. And, well, there's no GPS on Mars, exactly. right? There's no, there's not even a reliable magnetic pole. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. What we're looking at is a stereo vision-based tracking system where will the vehicle will navigate, um, say, to a common waypoint. You know, a, a large um, physical land feature out in the distance, something like that. Okay. Uh, so that we can what, navigate. What about,
0: to, what about using stars?
1: Well, yes, sort of. But, you know, that the whole, the whole planet is uh, moving through space just like Earth is, and we don't have an accurate uh, celestial map from Mars' point of view, right? So um, we think it's just easier to use a couple cell phone-style cameras okay. and, and some simple um, uh, stereo vision algorithms and navigate that way.
3: Well, That's I mean, if,
0: if, if you want to go that way as opposed to, you know, mapping the stars <laughs> from Mars. <laughs>
1: yeah. So uh, – <laughs> The other the other challenge is that you know there is an atmosphere there it's not breathable like we're we have here on earth but there is there is fluid in the in the atmosphere on Mars so um, about 12,000 feet on earth I'm sorry about 12,000 feet on Mars is equal to about a hundred thousand feet on earth so it's like you know trying to fly you know a 24 inch span airplane at a hundred thousand feet so this might cruise at say 30 knots uh, indicated which is you know the the amount of across the wings of the pitot tube, but it's closer to 400 miles an hour. So true airspeed. So your velocities are quite high. Your indicated air speeds are very low. Um, and you also have lower gravity. So you have inertia problems uh, we call inertia coupling where it's a phenomenon that, um, happens when the way the mass is distributed across the wing, um, it, it doesn't lead to a stable configuration. So in short, we're adding mass, you know, like, Third of the way out, or halfway out the span, to sort of dampen these roll oscillations uh, that okay. we get at these higher, higher altitudes and, and lower Reynolds numbers. So it's a, it's definitely a challenge just to get the thing to fly correctly. And then uh, somebody else is going to take it, you know, probably JPL, and miniaturize everything, all the components, space harden it, do all that kind of stuff. So we're solely concentrating on figuring out the arrow, arrow portion of it making the thing a flyable vehicle, and then we're integrating the payload and miniaturizing and figuring out how to pack it up later.
0: So what what kind of uh, software are you running? I mean, what are you, like, fluid dynamic software that, that um, what is it, computational C, you know, CFD, CFD stuff that you're running that you can model the atmosphere on Mars?
1: So, um no, oh, the answer is our own. So it's some stuff that we've developed, right? We have, again, some very smart people that do that. But we can take something like a SOLIDWORKS model and um, import that into a, a CFD environment and get an idea. Uh, we also use the basic stuff, you know, AVL and uh, x things like that, along with the standard uh, math-type programs like MATLAB uh, to okay. do all, the, all that stuff. And so anybody who's familiar with that sort of uh, environment would be, you know, right at home. Doing the stuff that we do, we use a lot of the same tools that, that the regular folks do. Um, but we do have access to some some tools that we've developed on our own to do some really high end type stuff. Cool.
2: Yeah, I had somebody I asking, asking about the FP- I'm sorry.
1: Oh, somebody's asking about FPV frequency. Uh, we typically run on L band, which is, um, you know, 1600 megahertz, something like that. Uh, we do do some five, eight stuff, which is a typical FPV frequency. Mm. The problem with it, with 5.8 though, is we have to compete with F 35. We're on uh, an air force base and they do flight tests there. So F 35 flies there regularly and a lot of their telemetry is on 5.8. So, um, uh, simply from a scheduling perspective, we prefer not to use it because it's crowded.
2: Yeah. I, I would imagine that is, um, somebody asked earlier and I was trying to find it and I don't see it, but, uh, what, what do you think about the uh, the job market in the UAS system, you know, in the UAS field right now?
1: Well, I think it's exploding. Um, you know, there, there are, there's room right now for, you know, operators, people flying multi-rotors, doing power line inspections, pipelines, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, uh, aerial sim- cinematography, all that kind of thing. But right now, I think that's in its infancy. There's still a lot of R&D mm-hmm. type outfits, you know, somebody trying to develop a product uh, to market you know people like bird's eye view and um, they make the firefly and some other some other folks out there that, that do different type things where they're trying to build a um, you know build a product I think that market is probably stronger than the operator market at the moment but eventually I think that's going to switch I think there's going to be a huge market for operators um, and entrepreneurs that want to pony up some cash and build a little business and try to do that so it's a very exciting time unmanned aircraft are absolutely the future they'll never replace pilot piloted aircraft 100 percent, but they can certainly do a lot of things that are either too boring or too dangerous for a piloted aircraft to do um yeah. in a lot of ways
0: yeah. yeah well so let me ask a more important question which is all about me
3: <laughs>
0: so Go. does nasa have a place for me i have a degree in mechanical engineering i did that for about 10 years or so 10 12 years then i have a degree in teaching physics certified could i get a job at nasa
1: so uh, i do a lot of um public outreach i I visit a lot of schools um i do things like this i've done a couple videos and especially when i'm talking to the younger generation the short answer is yes absolutely I'm, i'm giving you the longer answer now though is one of the things that I tell folks when I talk to them is um, I ask them, you know, how many of you have ever thought about working for NASA? And, you know, some hands go up. And then I'll ask them, how many of you think you're smart enough to work at NASA? Fewer hands go up. Then I ask them, I, I want you to try to think of a job that NASA does not do. Because I think. Uh, and you may be uh, under the same impression that you have to be a super smart scientist and a you know uh, degree. But engineer. I am.
0: I, I am. <laughs> awesome. I there
1: am. is there is absolutely a place for you. Uh, I'm <laughs> I'm unencumbered by a degree. I'm entirely self-taught. Yeah. So uh, I'm proof that you don't need to be a doctor or whatever to work at NASA. But the point is, um, the most important thing you need to work at NASA is the willingness and the want and the drive to do that. So we're constantly looking for people, young and old, who want to do good work. They want to do, you know, research. They want to make a difference. And it's not all engineers. Um, I mean, there is every, every discipline that you could possibly think of happening, you know, within NASA, not necessarily at my center, but, you know, at all the centers. So, you know, take, take a few minutes, a few seconds, whatever, even some of the guys in the chat and try to come up with a job that you think NASA doesn't do. And we'll see if you can stump me. I haven't been stumped yet. So that's a a pretty tall challenge. But the answer, the real answer is Um, usajobs.gov. We have tons of mechanical engineers. Uh, Mechanical engineering.
0: What about about mixing paint? Does NASA mix paint? Oh, God, Pat.
1: (laughs) So I'll let you stew on that one for a minute. But, um, you know, just think about (laughs) something like like the X-15, right? A hypersonic aircraft. Um, NASA developed an ablative coating. Uh, that they could paint the aircraft with to withstand the heat um so the answer is yes absolutely we have paint shops um we have to paint all our own aircraft um so yeah that's that's low-hanging fruit you gotta do better than that
2: (laughs) my my fruit hangs low buddy (laughs) nice (laughs) keep it clean pat
1: so i i see i see a dry cleaning one here that's a that's a good one um Of course, we have all the flight suits the pilots wear, um, all the space suits uh, have to be clean, that kind of stuff. Um, Another one's asking about bridge inspection. Sure, we have an entire facilities department. We not only do bridge inspection, but we do all the building and maintenance inspection, uh, all that kind of stuff, which incidentally we're starting to do a little bit of that with unmanned aircraft, uh, specifically the S-1000, things like that.
2: See that's what I need is a job where I can go fly every day, uh, inspecting bridges and buildings and all that. That would be fantastic. And there's another one, underwater
1: welding. Um, so at NASA Johnson, I think it is they have this huge um, underwater tank where they train astronauts to do things. Um, and yeah, they do some they do some underwater welding. They've developed some techniques there to, to do some of that um, in conjunction with NOAA. Okay. Um, lumberjack, yeah, that would that would fall under our facilities, guys. Um, whenever you have to clear out an area to build a building or put in a runway or a tarmac or something like that. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Fred, those are off base, quit it. <laughs>
3: so
1: so the, the, the point is that, you know, NASA employs a, a huge wide variety of people. So uh, when you ask the question, you know, is there a place for me at NASA, you know, absolutely there is a place for nearly everyone now. Uh, not everyone can get in. It's it's simply a numbers thing, obviously, right? And you do have to be, um, you know, whatever your chosen profession is. They don't they don't necessarily take the guy that just got fired. They they want somebody that knows what they're doing. So uh, you've got to be good at what you do.
2: Sure. Well, I'm in ink manufacturing, and that's something that uh, I I know they do a lot of because we actually uh, uh, will. Uh, supply ink to some of the, some of the. We files. have a giant
1: graphics department that does yep. all of our decals, all of our posters, all of our, uh, all of our artwork, all that yep. kind of stuff. So yeah, graphic artist, uh, you know that type of stuff. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, that. Uh, we also cool. take um, interns every year. You know, um, ironically, the Prandtl project is largely an intern project. Um, we do the, the construction, the actual flight of the aircraft, but the interns. A lot of times we'll do a lot of the integration on the airplane. You know, I'll give them a set of guidelines or we'll have a document that says, you know, you have to interface with this system or whatever. And we'll, of course, oversee it. But we give them a huge amount of latitude to actually touch the airplane and build things. That's um, awesome. And then my, uh, take the data and reduce it and, you know, do something
0: with it. My 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 youngest son is currently a freshman uh, majoring in physics right now. Um, awesome. And that, that would be something he, I think, would love to do.
1: Uh, I can put the intern link up. Um, awesome. Now, as you can imagine, we get thousands and thousands of thousands
0: and thousands. Yes,
3: of, oh, of yeah. intern
1: applications, and I take interns specifically in in my lab. And believe it or not, um, I, when I look through the interns, uh, there's there's other folks that you know take the applications and they'll sort of filter them out and they'll bring them down to me and I'll look through a a few dozen or something like that but if I see a a kid uh, that's got model airplane experience top of the pile right off the bat Um, because I know that that experience brings with it a a broad knowledge um, especially if they've been been doing it for any length of time you know and um, those DIYers are exactly what we do Uh, we don't build anything production everything is you know, custom one-off, and you know, if you if you show me a kid that's been flying RC airplanes for five years, I'll show you a kid that knows how to use a ton of different glues. Um, he can use a soldering iron. Um, he knows the it. basics of aerodynamics. If I tell him to do a weight and balance on an airplane, he at least knows what that is and can you know formulate a, a basic plan to do that. Um, if, if you're talking about Uh, aircraft setup and differential and all these things that are, you know, really pretty advanced in the aero world An RC guy knows that stuff right off the bat. So, uh, I'm pretty partial to that because obviously that's my background and that's where I came from. Uh, so I look for that, um, right off the top of my head. Anytime anybody applies, I'll take, I'll take a kid that's doing a design build fly challenge. And if he, you know, if he's a pilot, um, he's right at the top of the pile and he's a C student. I don't care. I'll take him over an A-plus student every time. It's never touched an RC airplane.
2: Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Keegan needs
1: to be listening Delta Tart's got it right. It's Aussie. That's where you get your your, uh, offer.
2: Okay. Well, you better write that down, Pat. You may be able to get a job at NASA.
0: Well, you know, I can't work at Lowe's forever. That's right. By the way, I've never been fired from a job. Just saying. (laughs) Cool leaving was always voluntary that's right (laughs) well not
2: of my own volition i should say yeah keegan we're gonna have to make sure keegan knows about this because this is something i bet he could yeah
0: yeah yeah we uh keegan spawns is a is a real good young guy he uh is just wrapping up his first semester at some school in north dakota for
2: commercial aviation awesome And he yeah. he actually uh, it, built a what was it one hundred uh, and
0: twenty percent hundred creaky one hundred and ten or one hundred and
3: one percent creaky yeah in oh, four days that's a neat airplane
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> just a uh, so um
1: if you're if you're not already subscribed to the NASA Armstrong um, YouTube channel I would suggest you do that they they tend to post a lot of my stuff, Um, a lot of the, you know, what the center does, all this crazy stuff, right? So they get to see it all there first. But uh, if it's unmanned, chances are I've got something to do with it. Um, Everything that's uh, 330 pounds and less and 300 knots and less goes through my lab. So uh, I'm responsible for airworthiness and pilot training, all that kind of stuff, as well as JPL, all JPLs, unmanned stuff. Um, At least the pilot qualifications uh, goes through me.
2: Okay. You got a lot going on then. <laughs> yeah, pretty busy. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to do this. I mean, yeah, wow. exactly. I, you know, I'm just like you guys. I, I love this stuff and uh, happy to give back in whatever little way I can. Yeah, awesome. awesome. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you was willing to come out here and talk to us for a little bit. And you know, sure. we've we've got a couple of uh, younger people that uh, will definitely be interested. I know Arrow Geek is is like all over it. Um, I, I guess Keegan probably had some things he had to do. I don't know because he was in here earlier, but I know he'll come back and listen and and he'll be really interested as well. Um, especially get to maybe come out and do something like that because they they built a lot of things, you know, designed some things after other things, yeah. and him and his father actually uh, do a lot of stuff together um awesome yep. well for, yeah. for those folks out on the west coast
1: um ama is having their annual convention in ontario this year i believe it's in early january yep and uh, we always have a pretty large presence there and we bring out a bunch of airplanes and talk to folks and uh you know i just like to invite whoever might be interested to come on out and, and say hi i'll be there the whole weekend um shaking hands and kissing babies and that kind of thing and if you have a question about the intern program or whatever that's also a great place to meet uh the guy who runs that whole program and um a lot of times that introduction is really the key to uh sticking out in the crowd you know we get as, as you can imagine nasa gets a stack of uh applications and every one of them is absolutely fantastic right they're all at the top of their field they've all got these recommendations from their instructors they're all carrying you know 4.0 plus average so they're, they're all really really smart people and it really comes down to uh the luck of the draw so i've picked a few interns that i've met in person over folks that i thought may have been better on paper and i'm glad i did that because um you know the personality and the drive is what's most important to me um you know for whatever yep. that's worth
2: well yeah. that's i think that's worth a bunch i mean some i i would rather hire i mean you know i've been a manager myself for a while and I would rather hire someone that may take a little longer, but but wants to do a, a better job than yeah. somebody that's great on paper but really doesn't have any. Drive I always at want, all. yeah. I always
1: want the person who wants to be there. If you want yes. to be there, I'll teach you the rest.
2: <laughs> the enthusiasm is the key. Yeah, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Anybody, can, almost anybody can do anything. It's the
2: will to do to do, do the work to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The want to's got to be absolutely. there, or you can forget it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've had some that come through that um, think they're gracing us with their presence and that they, you know, they're few and far between. But there have been a few. And, and, you know, those folks, they have they do fine and they get through the internship, but they don't get invited back. And um, the one thing I always tell the folks that come in for the internship is this is really a 10 week job interview, because if you if you do well at the internship. To hire people. It's it's virtually guaranteed if you do well at the internship and you show interest, um, you can get a job offer relatively easy, and, and um, you know you're set for life if you want to. So, uh, if that's if that's the area you want to pursue, then I highly suggest that you you do what all you can to get in there.
2: Aero geek, are you listening? <laughs> <laughs>
1: He's right. You can't teach enthusiasm. You've got to be that's right. You know an airplane nut. And, yeah. Um, you know it helps, right? There's there's a thousand guys I'm sure standing in line that would stab me in the back and slit my throat in a heartbeat if they knew they could take over my job. So that that's not lost on me. I'm very thankful, very grateful for where I am, and uh, I'm I'm happy to share that. And you know, same for you folks that are out there. If you're ever in the neighborhood, um, if you can give me enough advance notice, I can probably get you out there to
2: take a look and give you give you a tour. Oh, I would oh. love that, Pat. You why don't are you out. as you head this way? <laughs> Yeah right. We'll just head out. (laughs) I'll I'll talk
0: to my cousin, okay, and and we'll hop on his uh, his his King Air and pick you up, and we'll be out. Yeah, sounds good. There you go. I'm ready.
1: (laughs) So, uh, Ryan says that Edwards is out in the middle of nowhere. It it kind of is, but um, I live in Palmdale. It's a 45 minute drive from my driveway to my desk, and um, you know, LA is less than an hour, so it's not it's not that far out of town. It's far enough to be out of the, the idiot range and close enough to go to the beach or do whatever you like if you want.
2: See, I would yeah. much rather be it's out a, of the idiot range. What What is
0: cool? I, I just driving over the mountains out there, like you're going up, 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 up. And it's like a freaking rainforest when you get up on top of the mountain and then you come down yeah. the backside and the clouds overhang. And then you just come out into this stark landscape. It is such a, a drastic change and such a cool experience.
1: Yes. Yeah, so you know, we live in the antelope Valley and it's a big, it's a V shape. Right. And, um, I live in the, in the far Western part of the, the, the nook of the V and, uh, we call all those mountains and pardon my French here for a second, but we call that a shit screen because <laughs> it, because it screens out all the weather. Um, we have 300 plus flyable days a year here. Oh um, man. Because of the clear it- air. Now the drawback is, is it's windy. Um, it's windy a lot. In fact, when the Wright brothers were looking for a place to fly, they wrote the National Weather Service and asked for the top ten windiest places on in in the country, and um, Kill Devil Hills, you know, won out. That was the number one place. But number four is Lancaster and Palmdale, <laughs> right here. So uh, <laughs> it's windy. But if you're into slope soaring, that's awesome. Um, yes, if you're into- I. If you're into foamies, that's a little bit more of a challenge. I do have a few foamies, and you have to pick your days, but, you know, it's not so bad. Um, if you're into dynamic soaring, you know, the the world record was set, you know, an hour from here at Bird Springs Pass. Um, Acton and Parker, which are two very well-known dynamic soaring hills, I mean, I can see one of them from my front front yard. The other one is uh, maybe 30 minutes away.
0: What, what was the world record speed? Do you, do you remember? Uh, I, I want to
1: say that. it's... Um, it's in the 500s, low 500s, yeah. 515 yeah. or so, something like that. Do you,
0: think, do you think they'll ever break supersonic?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, wow. I, I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to take a huge leap in uh, logic and the way that the airplanes are designed. Nobody's really looking at area ruling yet. And I tried to have that discussion with one gentleman, and, and he says, well, that's only for powered planes. So I said, okay, well, good luck. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Um, the challenge is, you know, going that fast and, uh, turning that tightly, um, things get small and it happens, happens fast. I've only ever dynamic sword to maybe, uh, 300, low 300, something like that. 500 is a whole new world. And then, you know, depending on the day, 600 plus, um, that's really smoking. So mm-hmm. uh, the planes are nearing, um, 200 G's in flight. And, uh, yeah, I think it'll get there, but it's going to take, uh, you know the forward thinkers. I remember when 200 miles an hour was a big deal. A guy named Craig Tullman was the first guy to go 200, and everybody thought, "Oh man, they're never going to go any faster." You know, and now we're, you know, two and a half times that. So that's pretty Over incredible. 500 miles it,
0: it's, an hour, just crazy. It's it's amazing. The fastest plane, RC planes, on the in the world are uh, non-powered. Yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely. And um, to the, I, I love to tell people that, especially the folks that that aren't really into RC. You know and we'll chuck the engine first thing and <laughs> <laughs> go from there. I mean, foamies are doing close to 200 miles an hour now, so it's yeah. incredible.
3: Yeah,
1: that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, well, Delta's think- asking me about rotary wing stuff. He asked that a couple times. I apologize. Uh, yeah, we do do some rotary wing stuff, uh, although our center is um, the center for flight test for NASA. We do mostly fixed wing stuff. We do do some rotary wing stuff as well. It just depends on you know what we're researching. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And I do, I do fly helis as well. Oh, do you? Oh, cool. Those things I mm-hmm. I've tried and tried and tried and just can't do it. I don't have It's, um, yeah, it's just me. one of
1: those things I picked up along the way. I'm not a, I'm not a hardcore 3D heli guy, although I can, I can do some stuff. I was more into the precision, uh, believe it or not, pattern style mm-hmm. heli, you know, full point rolls and things like that. Okay. Uh, F3C, I think they call it. <laughs> Anyway, and uh, drag racing, helicopter drag racing. I went sideways on that for a number of years. That, <laughs> that was dra- really crazy. I heard that was of fun. That one.
2: <laughs> That's one I haven't heard of. No, I've never heard of that. It, it yeah.
1: doesn't seem to be too popular anymore. Um, ten years or so ago, maybe fifteen years ago, it was all the rage. Uh, guys are building these crazy overpowered helicopters, you know, a sixty size motor and a thirty size airframe and running insane head speeds and all that kind of stuff. In fact, JR made a dedicated drag race helicopter at one point. Huh.
3: Huh. Yeah,
0: th- those things just terrify me. They really do. <laughs> they just, everything about them is scary to me.
1: It's a bunch of parts flying in formation.
2: Yeah, it, yeah Right, uh, just yeah. waiting to fly off and hit me. Yeah, mm-hmm. spinning blades of death. Those things are exactly uh, just scary.
0: So uh, it, what do you think the chances are that NASA would ever send you or someone... Out to Flight Fest in Ohio in the summer.
1: Well, I just went to the one in uh, Northern California earlier this year. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, we have a budget for those sorts of things, and what you have to do is, um, you know, get a hold of our public affairs office and get your request in early. Like it's probably too late for next year already. Uh, although it's not, it's not impossible. And it also has to fit in with our flight schedule and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, offline, I can give you all that information. I give you my work email address, and you shoot me an email, and I can put you in touch with the right sort of folks. And, uh, yeah, it happens. I mean, that's uh, part of my job is public outreach. I, well,
0: I, 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 I will – please do send me that info because okay. I will yeah. contact them and say, hey. Um, well, we can, we can
2: talk to, you know. Uh, flight Fest West is okay, but Flight Fest Ohio is – that's the one that that's, yeah. the one. that's the one Yeah, that's the original yeah. and it's it's usually the largest and um i'd love to come spectacular it's it's right there and of course you know flight tests home so
1: yeah good stuff be, yeah, so that would be um, unfortunately i probably couldn't bring anything excuse me to fly but i'd certainly love well i'll bring, we to got bring some we got oh, I mean, I can bring you guys pers- i can bring some personal yeah. stuff i just can't bring work stuff
2: you show up, and I'm sure there would be plenty of stuff for you to fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots yeah. Of fun.
0: I'll have I'll have plenty of airplanes there for you to fly, buddy. Awesome.
1: <laughs> I think we're going to do Oshkosh this year. There's been some talk of us flying the 25 foot uh, Prandle wing there, so oh, nice. that that might happen.
2: Well, I'm sure that uh, some of the people at Flight Test will be there as well because they always go because it's a, what. Well, and like two weeks after Flight Fest, yeah,
3: yeah, yeah,
0: early yeah. August. Uh, Keegan will be there working, I'm sure he works there every year, yeah, awesome, yeah. We'll have yep. to put
2: them two together for sure. So, yep. okay, well, we've been on here about an hour and 50 minutes yep. or so. Um, we don't want to keep you any longer, Red. We sure appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you so much. I, worries. I so enjoyed so, talking. Thank you. To you. Thank you
1: for having me. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, reach out on RC Groups. My uh, my handles Alien Tech, Uh, my YouTube channel, which uh, there's not a whole lot there, but there is some stuff there, including a full scale prandle. We never talked about that. Um, It's just just my name there. And uh, of course, you know, email me if you like or whatever. I'm always happy to talk and help out.
2: Well, it's it's more than appreciated. Um, you know, one of the things that we try to do uh, you know, with, with our podcast is try to get kids interested in um, you know, flight and RC and and engineering and any any of that, you know, STEM stuff.
1: Yeah, um, big deal. It's a big deal. It yeah. is a
2: big deal. Um and and we want, you know, whether it's, you know, young men, young women, you know, everybody we want everybody to be involved in it because it's just so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Well, yeah. it's the coolest thing ever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and people, you know, the people that have not been exposed to it just don't understand how fun it is. And and we try to, you know, bring those people, you know, uh, some of the joy that we get. So,
1: well, you know, as I said before, but you know, NASA is hiring right now. We look for people right now, and there's a huge STEM presence here in the area, as you can understand, because of the, you know, all the aerospace that's here—Lockheed and General sure. Dynamics and Boeing—they're all right here, right? Yeah. As long you know, with NASA, so um, you know we we look for kids. Um, we take interns, believe it or not, senior year of high school. So if you're if you're old enough and in between your junior and senior year, you can apply and and be an intern while you're still in high school, and uh, all the way through college and however long you know the whole the whole program works out. So we're always looking to replace our gray haired folks. There's a joke, you know, that all of our all of our workforce is aging, and it's very true. Um, I'm 46, and I'm one of the younger ones there. Right? There's a lot of older folks that are simply retiring, and we're not replacing them quick enough. So, right. um, very eager to do that.
2: Let's see. I've got about 13 years left. I wonder.
3: <laughs>
1: I, I, you know, um, there's no mandatory retirement age for my position, so I, I suspect I would easily work there into my 60s or 70s if I if I wanted to. Well,
0: yeah i, I don't you. i don't ever plan on retiring so I, I might as well find a job that i love <laughs> yeah
1: well you know they always say you find a job that you love and you'll never work a day in your life right i've been lucky to be doing that now for 20 years or so so i'm, I'm pretty you, happy bro. about that that's, that's awesome man that's
2: man. that's a success right there that right really is so you should definitely, you. Exactly. definitely walk proud with that because not a lot of us are able to do <laughs> it's, that it's fun stuff so again uh Red, or should I call you Robert, or just Red? Yeah, uh, my mom calls me Robert. Okay, um, I will, I will be your mom. <laughs> 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 but but Red, we we really appreciate it, and I want to say thanks to Pat for reaching out to you. Um, you. You've brought a lot of really neat and interesting stuff to us, and I will continue to watch your stuff and and see what goes on out there at the at the base, and. Yeah, no
1: worries. Thanks for having me on, and uh, you know, I feel like we just scratched the surface. We could, we could probably talk all night if you wanted well, to.
2: So uh, I, I'm okay with that. Well, we could possibly <laughs> do it again if, if you would be so kind to come back at some point. Maybe we sure. could do that again. You know? Yeah, sure. Just yeah, let I me know,
1: would, and then we'll work
2: it out.
0: Yeah, I would love to talk to you more. Um, yeah, I, I thank you so much. I, I have the Prandtl article that was printed out laying around here somewhere because it's always around here somewhere. Excellent. Um, I just don't know where it is at. Oh, wait, is that it right there? No, that's the Skype pup. Nope, that's not <laughs> it. So, uh, <laughs> for those of but you anyway. on,
1: on Facebook, there's a, a group called the Horton Flying Wing Believers, and it's a closed group, so you have to ask to join. Um, However, myself and uh, Al Bowers, who's, again, the chief scientist, the Crandall's his baby, uh, frequent that quite a bit. So there's a lot of really smart folks in there, too, that have developed tools to calculate the twists and all that kind of stuff. Um, If you're really interested in that sort of thing, I recommend you join that group and and start asking questions. Um, There are a few folks in there that are building models and they're flying them. And, um, you know, it's really a great community of of folks that are uh, trying to sort of venture out of the known... Uh, knowledge base that we have you know there's all this stuff that's the accepted way and we're kind of pushing our our little fingers outside of that trying to to make some new stuff so it's a it's good good thing
0: awesome. awesome awesome stuff i'm looking right now hey there it is i just click join group done there
3: you <laughs> <go>. <laughs>
2: yeah well again we won't keep you any longer um but we sure, you know, really appreciate the fact that you come on, uh, shared some time with us and, uh, shared, you know, some knowledge and, uh, hopefully maybe we'll get, uh, uh an intern or two out of it before it's over with for you. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that would Thank be, you. that would be great. And, uh, yeah, we'll see what we can do about, uh, you know, once this thing's done, uh, um, maybe see if we can get you out to flight fest. East, either eighteen or maybe nineteen as well. You never know. See, we very can do. cool. I'd love to come hang <laughs> yeah. out. I'd love to meet you there, man. Yeah, absolutely. Love to love to be able to shake your hand. So yeah, it's overrated. Yeah, <laughs> nah, man. Good friends are hard <laughs> to find. So <laughs> if it wouldn't have been for this wonderful little rc group that we have i wouldn't have near as many friends and near as close of friends as i do so yeah i agree that's that's for yeah. sure yeah. that's best that's friends to me i've ever had that. my or because of this yep because rc yep absolutely for sure so yep. everybody out there listening to us thanks so much for listening um, thank you guys we really appreciate red and we appreciate you guys listening to us and uh, come back in a couple of weeks, probably after the first of the year. We'll probably have some new stuff for you. Um, don't forget, uh, call our wonderful voicemail, because we didn't get any this week. Uh, it's oh. 802-465-FTCC, and that's 802-465-3822. Everybody, thanks for listening. This is the Flight Test Community Cast saying, Blue Skies. Thanks, guys. Take care. Good night, everybody. Good night.